Hello. You are listening to Maghreb in Pastin Present Podcast. A space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on the 5th of March 2018 at the Centre d'études maghrébines à Tunis, CEMAC. In this podcast, Dr. Larissa Shomiak, CEMAD Director, interviews Max Ayo, doctoral student in the Department of Development Sociology at Cornell University, about his research on the social origins of development and underdevelopment in Tunisia. Your PhD dissertation focuses on the nexus between Tunisian state agriculture development policy, state subsidy policy, as well as the world commodity markets in the post-1980 period. How did you become interested in this topic and how did you choose Tunisia as a site of inquiry? I approached this topic as a way of giving a historical grounding to the question of the world food price crisis, which erupted around 2008 and uh, once again erupted in 2011, where there was a rapid commodity price inflation across global commodity markets, and which reverberated into especially the global south commodity markets and global south food prices. And I wanted to look at how these prices were transmitted to the Arab and North African countries. There was a lot of talk, if we recall, post-2011 about economic triggers for the Arab Spring, which is probably not the most precise locution to describe what has happened in the Arab world post-2011. But at the time, a lot of people were talking about how these were actually food riots, which was probably in some ways true and in some ways untrue, and which was actually hard to ascertain to some degree because it, it relied on pricing and market information being transparent and actual prices reflecting the fixed prices. So I wanted to look more precisely into this question and see how post-colonial state formation was tied into the question of world commodity prices and how states were both transmission belts and also buffers for movements on world commodity markets. So I chose Tunisia in part because the exigencies of research in the region right now impose certain difficulties upon research sites, for one thing. For another, uh, Tunisia has actually a very highly developed state system and has a very strong state, comparatively speaking, and has been able to engage in a wide array of price engineering in the post-colonial era. And a lot of the system of price regulation for food commodities remains in place from the, the, post-colonial, the post-colonial price engineering system when actually prices for almost everything were fixed. Tunisia had one of the most widespread systems of price engineering of not only any country in the region, but also any country in the world. At its peak, over 4,000 items had their prices fixed somehow by the state. And I think this was an office of around 160 people who are responsible for fixing this many prices, which comparatively speaking was a very difficult burden of responsibility on these people. The amount of knowledge it takes to fix prices is something that has been historically something that's led to all sorts of market and distribution issues and which has also in some ways caused a lot of the economic friction in the former Soviet Union. So this is was a very difficult a number of prices to fix for this amount of staff. So when they they restructured it, 
And I wanted to look partially at this process of restructuring, but also to understand in the, in the mid-80s. But I also wanted to look at how much of this policy remained in place and what the social effects were on the population, what the redistributive effects were on the population, how it affected what people chose to eat, and how it affected what people chose to produce. So all of these things converged into looking at this aspect of Tunisian policy and Tunisian state formation as an entry point into understanding broader processes of social inclusion, social exclusion, and post-colonial state formation, economic development, and economic underdevelopment. For the non-experts listening to this interview for the first time, can you talk a bit more about the history of the politics of price fixing in Tunisia and perhaps comparatively as well? So the Tunisia emerged from the struggle for independence severely economically damaged. Uh, not only had it been damaged by seven decades of colonial capitalism, but it had also been further damaged by capital flight, capital strike, and all sorts of issues relating to the national liberation struggle itself. At that time, the country faced an issue of how to develop, as did many countries in the world all over. And in essence, one of the core articulations or one of the core policies that the state put in motion was to continue its policy of price fixing, which actually had started under the, under the French colonial system, but to make it firm, to apply it to a wide array of items, and to simultaneously freeze wages. The idea of both fixing wages and fixing prices was to, one, make sure that rising wages would not cut into the amount of funds that the country had available for investment, because there was a direct trade-off, as the government saw it, between funds available for investment and funds available for wages, especially given the fact that as the country moved to an ever more uh, state-based economy, the state companies had a direct trade-off. Either they would have more funds available, again, for investing in fixed capital formation, or it would go to consumption. So from 1955, the government basically had a full wage restraint until almost 1970. I think there was one wage increase of around 10%, and also or during the when they, they devalued the dinar, there was a, a small wage increase as well. But more or less wages were frozen, uh, slightly increased, but inflation actually increased considerably more than wages did. In fact, from 1964 onwards, most workers saw their wages decrease. And this was part and parcel of how the government and arranged its social pact with the UGTT, which was the, the Tunisian labor union. The labor union basically agreed to be a partner in the social pact with the government, and what it even talked about at certain points in organic fusion with the party. This put the labor union in a situation in which it became actually a subservient junior partner because it had to form policies or it had to accept government policies. This put the union in a situation in which it faced a trade-off that was imposed upon it by the government between wage increases and job increases. Job increases meant employment, in the, especially in the industrial working class or any form of the organized working class. And wage increases meant better wages for the people who actually already had jobs. Since the union, of course, wanted to increase its membership, the more jobs that were easily organizable, the stronger it would be in terms of breadth, but in terms of depth and in terms of the living conditions of the constituents, the people who made up the union itself, the higher their wages were, the better off they would be. So this basically put the UGTT in a difficult situation where it had to 
both accept wage constraints and also contest them and also at the same time try to keep people happy and keep its constituents and members happy. Ultimately, the UGTT chose one route to get out of this, which was try to put in place a system of cooperatives and eventually put in place a system of uh, purchasing cooperatives. This was not particularly successful policy, in part because the government adopted the cooperative program more broadly and put it under its own aegis and prevented it from kind of being an endogenous UGTT basis for the accumulation of economic activity. But in the main, the, this policy endured of simultaneous wage and far lesser extent price constraint until around 1968, 1969, which is when the was no longer able to constrain independent activity for wage increases on the part of its unions. And this set in motion a very different set of developmental policies across Tunisia, especially, in fact, this helped contribute to the end of the cooperative experiment because there was too much instability on the labor level for the government to continue with the type of policies it was putting in place. We're going to talk a bit more about the cooperative program in Tunisia in just a few questions. But for now, to help listeners set the stage a bit, can you talk more about the principal actors and institutions in your work and what kind of sources you have consulted and worked with throughout the time of your research in Tunisia? So when I originally conceived the work, I was hoping to find a little more information about the forms of organization and documentation concerning the forms of organization in the rural sector, both the smaller farmers and the larger farmers. What I found out in the course of my research is that, and this is fairly rare, is that the UGTT was actually carrying the baton of social struggle, not only for social development and social equity and social welfare in the cities, but was also carrying it for the countryside, at least from 1956 to 1970. So insofar as calls for agrarian reform emerged in Tunisia, they emerged from the UGTT. And insofar as calls for development of the center and south of the country, which were and remain poor, and at that time were overwhelmingly rural, and are still have a very large portions of people living in the countryside or in cities which are economically tied to the countryside, the UGTT was the one advocating that. So one of the UGTT ended up somewhat inadvertently being a much more major actor in my story than I had originally thought it would be, uh, which also meant going to UGTT economic reports, going and examining the intellectual production of the thinkers and development experts who were in Congress and in dialogue with the UGTT, like uh, Justin de Bernice, and so forth. Some of the other actors are the Neo Destor, which obviously was carrying out a large development policy and has also been a very central actor, especially under Ben Salah and his development policies, where he was really taking the central stage on the, within the party in terms of setting out its developmental imperatives from 1962 to 1969. Earlier, I look at the Neo Destor and look at the splits within the Neo Destor and how that set the stage for the later developmental policies that the government would carry out. And and trying to kind of disaggregate or unbundle the neo destor and look at it less as a holistic party or movement and try to look at the various components that were vying for power within the neo destor during the 1954 to 1956, 1957 era when the trajectory of the neo destor was far from assured and far from set in the stone it would subsequently be after the civil war the civil war within the party emerged and kind of set it on a certain trajectory. So let's talk a bit more about that civil war within the neo-distor party. 
the war between the supporters of Salah ben Yusuf and Habib Bourguiba. Ben Yusuf, of course, lost. But what is the impact of ben Yusufism in post-independence Tunisia? Can we also talk about it today? So Yusufism has been what some of the Tunisian historians called probably the wrong word to describe what everyone understands as Yusufism, in part because Yusufism brought together a great many people in a great many components of Tunisian society in 1955 and early 1956, who somehow or another dissented from the new destour plan for a phased uh, move to independence. And so what they were united around was a program which came from Salah ben Yusuf, which was calling for full and immediate independence of the country. And ultimately, that program was, in fact, partially implemented. And so the, the primary foot soldiers of the Yusufite movement were the poor people in the center and the south of the country, and also the people living in the slums of Tunis, who were themselves primarily either uh, nomads or semi-nomadic people who were immigrating or in flight from economic dislocation in the center in the south, or were fleeing from the social dislocation which highly mechanized cereal farming had caused in the north. So there was just a wide belt of people who had left uh, Sukalarba and uh, Janduba and other regions across the north and had concentrated in the poorer areas of Tunis. And these people were heavily supportive of Ben Yusuf to the point that the new destour could not in fact hold its 1955 Congress in Tunis because it couldn't be assured of the safety of the Congress. Uh, and because Habib Bourguiba basically wanted to set up that conference in order to set his policy in stone and kind of coronate himself as the head of the new destour. Now, of course, we know that the, the Yusufites lost the struggle for control of the neo-destour, although they did engage their, the supporters known as the Falaga or Mujahideen or Muqawma, Muqawmin or resistance fighters, were the ones who helped deliver independence to Tunisia because it was under the pressure of the armed insurgency that the French accorded partial, although I would say not full sovereignty in 1956. And substantial amounts of land in the banking system remained very much in French hands after that period. Now, I think we see the reverberations of this in post-independence Tunisia in, on multiple levels. On one level, there's been a process of uh, recuperation of national memory itself. If you examine the historiography on the Yusufites, the overwhelming majority of it is, is post-2011, and it doesn't even really start emerging until post-2000 or so, when Gorgiba died. And so this is obviously a response to a fear that bringing up this discourse or bringing up the historical memory was in fact to tread on some of the myths of national memory in post-independence Tunisia, especially because in fact the French were one of the primary agents suppressing the Yusufite rebellion in 1956. And for obvious reasons, it would not serve to have mentioned this in a post-colonial state uh, in which Bouadguiba was identified as the supreme combatant who had led the liberation struggle. So to discuss this has been a fraught process in post-independence Tunisia. If you examine the dissertations, for example, being published at the Tisadriel Faculty for the Study of uh, Social Science or the um, Manuba, which are two of the main centers in Tunisia or in Tunis for studying modern history, 
there have been a remarkable growth in the number of people, of students who are actually taking the subject of inquiry, especially 2012, 13, 14, 15, because obviously it takes some time to set such research plans in motion. And if you look at the publication dates for books, again, a lot has come out post-2011 especially. Even some stuff was reissued or some stuff was immediately published in 2011, which meant the researchers had it ready, but just didn't want to publish it under Ben Ali because of the constraints. And this is because what they were questioning was one of the foundational myths of the country, which was that the Buergiba system was a system that the same as an independent nation state, when in fact Buergiba was the preferred option of the French in the face of the threat from Salah ben Yusuf, who was much more allied with Cairo, with Nasserism, uh, and also with the center and south of the country, where a lot of people came from. So all of this has very much had a, a complicated aspect, and it needs, a, it needs more research to examine the role of the Falaga in popular memory and the role of the Yusufites in popular memory. But in fact, what the primary thing that is visible, at least in the sphere of cultural production, is itself the recuperation of this as a valid part of official history or of national history or of the accepted historiography of modern Tunisia itself. So I think this is what you can see most visible. But it would, be, it would be a very important thing for people to go further than this and to examine popular memory of the, of the Falaga and Yusufite movement to really understand how and in what way it is reverberating amongst the population. All right, let's shift gears a bit and think about... So to shift gears a bit, um, whereas Algeria had an agrarian revolution, Tunisia adopted a corporative program, as you talked about before. Can you tell us why? And how do you understand the concept of failed revolution in your work and thought? So the planners were fairly explicit about what they were doing in, in that they aimed to put in place an agricultural revolution, meaning a revolution in the techniques used in the countryside and the amount of capital intensity and labor intensity and the various combinations of these in the production process instead of an agrarian reform, which most simply means redistributing the land and usually almost always taking the land from the people who have more of it and handing it to the people who had less of it. This responded to the basic developmental issue that the primary mode of getting a surplus for industrialization in any global South country is going to be the agricultural sector because that's most of what global South countries then and even now produce. And this is where the wealth comes from. It comes from the land. So countries, and this is also, of course, how you are able to take people out of poverty is by giving them a factor of production. And you obviously, you can't give, except at great cost, everybody a job in modern industry because industrialization is very expensive. So the easiest way to give people jobs is to give them enough land that they can make a living from and then to support agriculture. But the fact that it's the easiest doesn't mean it's the one countries necessarily want to do because it depends upon the articulation or the relationship between the post-colonial political leadership and the landed sector. If the landed sector has a lot of power, as they did in post-colonial Tunisia, and especially if they have close links and in fact had funded the national movement, which was again the case in post-colonial Tunisia, then there would be uh, the giving, the redistribution of land would become a very fraught issue. So this is not what the government ended up doing. The government justified a lot of this decision by creating 
an ideology of uh, distinction between the modern sector and the traditional sector. The modern sector, which was highly mechanized, highly capital intense, using a lot of fertilizers, using so-called modern production techniques, and the traditional sector having lower yields. In fact, one of the primary reasons that there was a yield differential between the two sectors is because the traditional, so-called traditional sector, especially in the north, was farming simply poorer soil, and the modern sector was farming better soil, and therefore had better yields. And what they found out when they were doing proper agricultural senses in the post-independence period is in fact that the modern sector was less mechanized than they had expected and was less using the types of production techniques that they had asserted were in motion. With that said, the move to cooperatives was undertaken with the expectation, subtended by the understanding, that mechanization and increasing capital intensity were going to be the most effective ways to increase yields and thereby to increase production in the agricultural sector and to have a larger surplus of food for First of all, and also raw materials, which could be used in all sorts of ways, especially either for export or for processing in the industrial sector somehow. So what they envisioned was to gather a large numbers of small peasant plots, a lot of which were even below one hectare, and huge numbers of which were between one and five hectares, which in dry farming is not enough to secure a living, and to gather these around nodes of state land, and thereby to create model farms, which would be at least 500 hectares, which they thought was the optimal size in order to use mechanization in order to increase yields. This was the theory. The practice was that a lot of it was very much imposed on more or less reluctant or at least disinterested peasantry. And the process through which this was imposed on the Tunisian peasantry varied from region to region. So when it hit the when it hit the north, it was more disliked but not necessarily opposed because people were very poor and there was supposed to be a guaranteed minimum income, so people to some extent accepted it even if they didn't particularly like it. It also hid all kinds of forms of social friction, for example, that they in putting people into these model farms, they also put people into model villages, which meant taking people away from the forms of housing and types of social relationships in their villages that they were used to and concentrating them in new ways. So people were used to having houses in which they would live with their parents and take care of their parents, or they would have animals, and the model villages did not have such forms of family housing or accommodations for that and also did not have any places to keep the animals. This was one form of social friction that it produced. Another form of social friction was because the houses themselves were built using kind of imported models and imported technology and imported techniques, which were in fact unsuited for northern Tunisia, where you need good insulation. And you also need insulation that allows heat out in the summer and keeps it in in the winter. And the new houses lacked that. And so they were actually less comfortable than the traditional types of housing that, in fact, the government had a lot of disrespect for because it was very much caught up in notions of modernization, which were pretty much the dominant trope or the dominant ideological tendency in the Neo-Destor. So for all these reasons, the cooperative experiment was encountering a lot of difficulty as it spread across the North in spite of the fact that it wasn't actually encountering outright resistance. Although it was encountering resistance from the larger landlords who were seeing some of the land that they had used to rent being incorporated into the cooperatives and thus they had less physical space in which to carry out their own production activity. Where the cooperatives hit a lot more resistance was in the coast, which is the traditional olive growing regions for a very long time uh, between Sfax and Susa. And this is where you have a very long 
hundreds and hundreds of years long traditions of sedentary uh, agriculture linked to villages. And you also have some places where there's actually very high concentrations of ownership of land and more to the point ownership of olive trees. So when the government tried to impose cooperatives, which it initially did through service cooperatives uh, to try to pool labor and capital in order to rejuvenate the co-ops, but later in in 1969, tried to broaden it to ownership cooperatives. This was encountered a great deal of resistance, and that resistance in turn resonated politically because these were some of the primary supporters and also funders of the national movement since before the 1950s. And for all these reasons, the, the cooperative movement ended up, instead of accommodating or building on the social interests of the small farmers who should have been its in a under an agrarian reform, at least, would be an agrarian reform's primary be beneficiaries, ended up alienating in substantial ways the government from the population who should have been the beneficiaries of its policies. So in all these ways, the, uh, the cooperative movement had a very complicated trajectory, and it was, in general, felt as an imposition from above rather than uh, innovation from below uh, and ended up undermining its social basis rather than strengthening it and thereby led to the downfall of what you can call the radical planners where the people associated with Ben Salah and who were running government policy from 1961 to 1969. A part of your dissertation examines U.S. food aid as it began in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Can you talk about how U.S. food aid programs figure into your larger project? So the U.S. Food Aid Project, the USPL 480 Food Aid Project, had a domestic origin and also uh, a foreign origin. Domestically in the United States, it came about because of how the government carried out farm support policies through and after the New Deal and how it came to need to dispose of the surpluses it was accruing because of the way it was supporting prices, carrying setting floor prices for domestic cereal production and also domestic soy production in the aftermath of the New Deal and especially in the aftermath of the Second World War. So it found itself with a great deal of excess cereals held in government stocks and needed to do something with them. And one option was, of course, to just sell them on global markets, which might have depressed global cereal prices and, in fact, created more of a surplus on global markets and in some ways exacerbated the problem of the U.S. needing to put in to control and protect its domestic producers. Or instead, what it did is it, in 1954, decided to use them as a tool of foreign policy. And what the U.S. encountered in 1954 was basically a world in which decolonization was the word of the day. And decolonization was not obviously just a political question of national sovereignty, but was also a social question of people feeling that colonialism was damaging their lives and preventing them from having you know, full and fruitful lives. And food aid was conceived in part as a way of controlling these anti-colonial movements, especially after they had achieved state power uh, and achieved national liberation, and giving them a way of containing and dealing with the problem of unemployment in these various countries. And so some of the countries that received major food aid in North Africa were Tunisia, later Egypt, and in fact, Algeria, uh, which is a bit of a surprise to a lot of people, but Algeria received substantial food aid from 62 to 64, I believe. And this is in part because these governments all encountered a population in which they had to accommodate socially and often had difficulty doing so, a 
especially because the easiest way or the, the most direct way to accommodate any socially dispossessed population is in fact to dispossess another portion of the population and redistribute the wealth. And especially, for example, in Tunisia, this was a very complicated proposition given the fact that the Nirudestor was not a revolutionary movement. It was a non-revolutionary anti-colonial movement. So in the Tunisian case, what FUDE did was it allowed the government and the U.S. to agree on this pattern of labor absorption in the countryside. Uh, what had driven, in large part, the national liberation movement was the substantial number of unemployed people in 1950s Tunisia. And there's a lot of estimates of numbers, but a very rough estimate is people said that there were 300,000 people who were unemployed, which was something like a third or more of the adult male labor force. So this was a huge proportion of the population that was unemployed, and the government very much lacked resources with which to set these people to work. And again, this touches back on the question of agrarian reform. If the government wanted to avert a radical agrarian reform, which it did because of how the government was constituted, what it chose to do instead was to use food aid uh, to employ people in these work groups that were supposedly carrying out all these forms of land reclamation, anti-erosion work, and so forth, that would, in theory, increase the productivity of the land, and certainly, both in theory and in practice, give people enough social resources or enough food and later wages in order that they would be able to survive when this was precisely the issue, that people were literally dying of famine and lack of food in large areas of the country. And this was what had driven so much of the social unrest. So the government hit upon this strategy in discussions with the U.S. because both parties had an interest in making sure that Tunisia would in fact be a success story rather than, to use a modern word, what they would call thought of as a failed state, but more realistically a state in which the the social situation would be out of out of the control of both the, the U.S. in that period and also the neo-distor elite, which wanted to carry out a process of third-way state building that was not veering towards communism, the Eastern Bloc, or Nasserism, and also would not be a liberal free market utopia of any kind, but would be a form of modernist, Western-oriented development. And so food aid was kind of the crucial crutch which allowed for the transition from post-colonial social and economic disarray to the highly structured economic planning patterns that really started to go into motion in 1961. And it represented very much a fusion of the various strands of interest which were converging in government policymaking at that time, which were ensuring people had enough food to eat, soaking up rural unemployment, in theory setting people to work productively, ensuring that they would there would be close ties with the West because this was very much a dominant concern of the neo-distor in the post-independence period was orienting Tunisia towards the West and at the same time using the threat of Nasserism or communism and its potential emergence in post-colonial Tunisia as a way to get the needed support from the West in order to carry out what it thought would be a proper non-revolutionary developmental policy which would finally deliver the country from post-colonial underdevelopment to what they hoped would be a full employment and a developed path by the end of the 1960s. And for various reasons, this policy did not work, in part because the projections were too optimistic, in part because some of the uh, productivity enhancements did not pan out, in part because the cooperatives did not work nearly as well as the government had intended for all sorts of reasons, mostly most of them tied to the lack 
lack of ownership of the lower rural peasants and lower rural proletarians in the management of the crops. But for all these reasons, the development project didn't pan out as the government had intended. But nevertheless, the food aid was very much a bridging mechanism to allow the government to set in motion via the policy space and the social space and the social stability in order to attempt to put in motion this development project and plan to begin with. Thank you again, Max, for talking about your dissertation. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website www.themaghrebpodcasts.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Semad newsletter at www.semadmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.